0: I like to say there's three great things that produce high yielding corn, and unfortunately, there is no silver bullet. It's a whole system, John, that takes it from the planter to in season management to harvesting.
1: And welcome to Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. This is where leaders, growers, and stakeholders in the corn industry can turn for big picture conversations about the state of the industry and its future. I'm Dusty Weiss, and I'll be introducing your host, Association CEO, John Doggett. From the fields of the Corn Belt to the D.C. Beltway, we're making sure the growers who feed America have a say in the issues that are important to them, with key leaders who are shaping the future of agriculture. The National Corn Yield Contest is an annual tradition that dates back to 1965. And with thousands of entries every year from across the country, earning any recognition in this competition is noteworthy, but winning it 4 times and regularly setting new yield records? Well, David Hula from Charles City, Virginia, is pretty unique in that distinction. In this episode, he'll tell us about his historic family farm, what techniques he uses, and why real sustainability is at the heart of what he does. But if you haven't yet, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast in your favorite app. Also make sure you follow the NCGA on Twitter at National Corn and sign up for the National Corn Growers Association newsletter at NCGA.com. And with that, it's time to once again introduce John, John Doggett, the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. And John, today we're going to be talking about the highlight of every growing season since about 1965, NCGA's National Corn Yield Contest. Every year, thousands of growers toss their hats into the ring to see if they can grow like champions and win state or national awards in nine different classes covering different soil types, irrigation, and tillage methods.
2: Dusty the yield contest. It's just a lot of fun. It's fun for its entrance and it's fun for those of us that get to watch it and to see the great things they're doing. It's an important demonstration of just how innovative and ingenious growers are by pushing that envelope of corn production. The contest opens the 1st of May, runs through mid-August. We average about 7400 entries nationwide. Now just think about that. You got that many people out there competing and doing their best and trying some really cool and neat and innovative things. So joining us today is a man who's really responsible for some true bin busters, David Hula from Charles City, Virginia. He's a four-time record holder. He continues to top his own record yields. This is what I think is interesting. His grandfather was one of the first in his area to break 100 bushels. Then his dad broke 200 bushels. Then David was the one of the first to break 300, and then 400, and then 500. And back in 2019, he raised 600. 16.195 bushels per acre now let me let me repeat that because that's just pretty cool 616.195 bushels per acre now that is just amazing and then david you had 602 bushels per acre in last year's contest you're the only grower to surpass 600 bushels per acre not once but twice. So David, welcome. Tell us about you. Tell us about your farm. Tell us about how you ended up there. We had a little of that conversation before we started. So tell us about who you are. Well, Mr. John, you know,
0: it was my late granddad, then my dad, and then we've had success. But wouldn't you hate to be my son? You know, <laughs> just imagine a high the bar. pressure on that. <laughs> That's exactly right. So I am fortunate. I got to farm with my late granddad and my dad and and my uncle. He since passed away. Farming's a dangerous occupation to start out with. And we had a tragedy here on the farm and lost my uncle and my dad just passed away last December. COVID got him. So now it's just myself and I have one younger brother that farms with me and a son. And then we got some full-time employees. But the history here at Rimwood Farms is kind of unique in that our ancestors came from Czechoslovakia. They landed in Baltimore and everybody was going west. Go west, go west. Now, this wasn't in the 16 or 1700s. This was in the 1800s, late 1800s. And they went west. They went out to Kansas. You know, they passed all that fertile ground. From Baltimore to Kansas. And, you know, they just had a string of bad weather. And then my great grandfather moved to Missouri. And that's where my great grandmother passed away from the Spanish flu. And then he took three kids and moved all the way to Texas. And then the drought followed him, and then he came back to Virginia. And that's where they were farming some ground, and then they bought some ground here on the banks of the James River. And it's kind of where we've resided ever since. And, you know, we farm, when you think about it, you think of Jamestown. Or oh, you think of the James River, you think of Jamestown. And, you know, if you ever watch the Walt Disney movie called Pocahontas, you know, you get a little bit of the story of Captain John Smith coming across the Atlantic Ocean and landed on an island. He came up the Chesapeake Bay Landed on Jamestown Island. And I'm like, you know, that would be my luck. I'd float across the Atlantic Ocean, land on an island. Well, they did that on purpose because they didn't know what kind of enemies they were going to be combating. So, you know, just a safety net. And that was in 1607. In 1609, they left the island and started farming what's now called mainland farms. And it is the oldest continuously farmed ground here in the U.S. from the Western civilization. And we've been farming that. So it's been farmed every year since 1609. And it's the second place, John, that we recorded 300 bushel dry land corn. So when you think about how good stewards we are, you know, we've come from digging a hole, putting a catfish down and three or four kernels of maize or corn seed on top of that catfish, that was a fertility program to produce 300 bushel corn. And that ground's been cultivated for 400 plus years. You know, that's just unique in itself there. And it's just a great area to raise a family. And just I'm just ever so grateful. We didn't chase and try
2: to find gold. You know, we were just trying to make a livelihood back then when they came back. You know, when people say corn production isn't sustainable, well, you've been doing it since the European settlers have been doing it since the early 1600s, and the indigenous people did it for hundreds of years before that. So I, I think we got it down, and, you know, it's still around. So tell us a little bit about I think you have some unique challenges or opportunities. I'm not sure which they are farming near Jamestown. You have some folks that kind of like to come and dig around on your property, don't you? Well, you think about what's happened here in Virginia. You had the Indians. And
0: then you had the Revolutionary War. Then we had the Civil War and just all kinds of, you know, maybe some conflicts. And then, you know, of course, we got the the city folks or the urban sector there. And along the James River, you have the plantation houses. And, you know, some of those were where some Civil War battlefields actually occurred. And in that, they have these Civil War reenactments or they may have some kind of gathering where a bunch of folks get together. So that just entices relic hunters. And we would get relic hunters come out and they may find a musket ball. They may find a belt buckle, you know, just all kinds of stuff. So it got to be a point where as time went on, some of these artifacts became of some value. And some of these relic hunters would come by boat. Come off the river shore, night vision, goggles and stuff just to go out and relic hunt because, you know, sometimes you'd give them permission. Sometimes you wouldn't because, you know, you might have a crop out there. You don't want somebody prancing through your cornfield or your wheat field to look for some kind of musket ball. So it annoyed me enough to where in a lime pile, I just went and got a bunch of old washers and nuts and threw it in the lime pile and broadcast it across the field. So that deterred (laughs) most of those relic hunters. (laughs) And um, I hope I personally don't ever want to pick up relic hunting because I know what I'm going to find. So
1: So that's one way to do it. David, they came in with night vision goggles. I didn't realize that the relic hunters were that well equipped.
0: Well, I mean, you think about it. Some of that stuff that they can find can be worth several thousand dollars. So it can become lucrative to some. But um, most folks that relic on, you know, as long as they'd fill the hole back up, ask permission, you know, we probably wouldn't have nearly the issue. But when they don't fill in the hole and they tramp through your field. So, yeah, that becomes a problem.
1: You know, my grandfather on my mother's side ran a tree farm in northern Wisconsin pretty much his whole life until he passed away. And I used to go out with him walking the fire breaks after we would plow them. And we'd just have our heads down in the dirt looking for Indian arrowheads. And for him, it was always such a Cool reckoning back to the history of the land that he had the privilege to be a steward of. And I would imagine that when you're going through your breaking soil, getting ready to plant in the spring, do you ever get a chance to just walk through those fields and see what you turn up?
0: Well, we used to years ago, you know, now that we've transitioned more to continuous no-till, you know, we're not breaking that ground. The farm there at Mainland Farms right next to Jamestown, since we've been farming in the early 1990s, we turned it into a continuous no-till, but somebody came out there with like a one or two bottom plow. And they figured that this had to be a particular spot to find some Indian artifacts. So they plowed up a section without permission, just went out there, and I'm sure they found some artifacts of some sort. But yeah, you know, we go out there when we were doing some tillage, we find some stuff along the river shore on a low tide, we can find some arrowheads. And, and then just looking at the edges of some of the fields, you know, we have one particular farm called Gospel Spreading Farm. It's got revolutionary forts as well as Civil War forts just in the edges of the woods right there. So you think about all that and you know, think about where we've come. I mean, we're in the, the epic center where all these battles where the country started and then you know, freedom continued. So it, it is neat.
2: That has to be just a really interesting component to what you do. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about and the secrets to your success. How have you been able to do what you've been able to do, which is truly amazing. So tell us about how you got started in the contest and what you have done to be so successful. Well, John, I guess
0: it it started back, you know, I remember, first of all, just riding on the fender. I know nobody rides on a tractor fender planting anymore because we got calves and, and all that. But as a kid, I was riding on the tractor fender with my dad and he was planting corn. And I think that was a time in which I said, hey, I want a farm. And, you know, we would talk and I'd just see all that and see how detailed he was. So went to North Carolina State, left there, came back to the farm, then left the farm for a little while and started working in the water quality industry for the Chesapeake Bay folks here in Virginia. Because, you know, when you think about we got all this history, but we have ground zero for water quality. You know, the Chesapeake Bay was kind of probably the first watershed that they started cleaning up. And I became a nutrient specialist and covered a large geographic area of Virginia and got to talk with a lot of great growers. There's one in particular named Ronnie Russell, and he was a a yield contest winner in the state for uh, many years. And just had the chance to learn from folks like him and other growers, came back to the farm, started implementing these things because good Lord gave me one mouth and two ears. So I'm I was a sponge pitching ideas to my dad and granddad. And they say, Yeah, that might work, maybe it might not. So as we would try things, I would just pick and choose. I started networking and creating this group of folks around myself. And, you know, from the fertilizer industry to the seed folks, John Deere equipment folks, Pioneer Seed or Nutrient, you just all kinds of specialness. And then entered the contest, and I think we came in third the first time, and I thought that was a pretty good feat. And then we entered again, and we came in first, and we got a chance to take a little trip somewhere, my wife and I, and then they sent us to, I think it was the first time they had the actual commodity classic. I think it was in Phoenix, maybe. So we went out there, and it's like, hey, this is awesome. So that was kind of the drive, John. Hey, we got to have a trip. All expense paid trip, little vacation. And then we started talking to growers and that kind of opened up the possibility like, hey, we're in Virginia, but here's guys in the Midwest that are producing 100 plus bushels more than we are. Why can't we do that? So we just started pushing it. And then I don't remember what classic it was, but I was sitting on a bus and the late Francis Childs got on the bus and he sat right across the aisle from me and he called me by name and he introduced himself. And, you know, I, he was like an idol to me. It's like, oh my goodness, here's Francis Childs and we're talking. And he said, David, get over your Eastern mentality of a corn ear. You don't need one big ear. You just need a lot of good medium-sized ears. And just with that, it kind of rejuvenated me to where we would try different things and wouldn't have that stereotype of, hey, this is the only way we can do it. So it opened up all these possibilities. And having that ability to talk to growers there at the Classic and just network kind of gave us the drive to continue. And I know those that watch this podcast, everybody wants to know, what is that one silver bullet that we do? And unfortunately, there is no silver bullet. I like to say there's three great things that produce high yielding corn. The good Lord bless you. Number two, you got to have pioneer seed. Number three, you got to have John Deere paint. So, you know, with those, that's easy. But it's a whole system, John, that takes it from the planter to in-season management to harvesting. I can talk hours about that, but we sure don't want to board the audience with all the details, but I know they want to know some of the secrets and tricks of the trade.
2: You know, one of the things I have heard from, I just heard it from you and I've heard it from other corn yield contest winners. And number one is you don't do it by yourself. You do it by talking to a lot of different people. And it's kind of amazing to me how much information you guys share with one another. I keep hearing that over and over again. The other thing you said was we keep trying new things and you find yourself willing to make mistakes in order to find out what doesn't work in order to find out what does work. And that kind of mentality of working with others and being willing to change and try new things that can help you raise a lot of corn. It can also help you in the rest of your life. So I will
0: say that probably the one big difference between myself and a lot of other growers that either participate in the corn contest or just growers in general, I've failed more times than I've had success. I don't mind failing. It's just you want to learn from your mistakes. It's clearly cheaper to learn from somebody else's mistakes than your own, but we do lots and lots of trials. It might be a small strip trial to where I've taken the corn planter, jacked up the closing row and hand planted seed just to see the differences of how the seed orientation is. I've taken two and a half gallon jugs and side dress corn and, you know, we pull tissue samples and then, you know, we do trials and we do plots and then things that we see, we start putting on you know, maybe a bigger trial and then more acres. So to get to where we are today has taken decades. I see Randy Dowdy from Georgia, first guy to break 500 bushels and he sure doesn't mind letting me know that. But he came in from no farming background, but he only sourced out information from successful folks. So he just streamlined all that. Where growers like myself, I'm kind of in a routine, you know, we have this preconceived notion, so it's hard to get out of that norm, but we have failed a huge amount.
1: But we've learned from those failures. You know, David, I had the chance at Commodity this year to talk to a couple of different yield contest winners, and it made me chuckle a little bit because the systems for keeping track of successes and failures, essentially keeping track of your data and learning from what works and what doesn't are so different. I talked to one person and she said, oh, yeah, I've got just spreadsheets on spreadsheets on spreadsheets. It's as complicated as the IRS over here. And I talked to another fellow and he said, don't write anything down. It's all up here. So what's your system for keeping track of the data there?
0: Well, unfortunately, there's some data that we just lose because we forget about where we've done a trial. But the neat thing about the technologies that we have and the planters and then the sprayers and then uh, the harvesting equipment, all that can get downloaded. Not a big guy that likes to use the cloud. I'm not an expert on technologies, but if we can enter the information correctly, either in whatever implement we're driving, whether it's the planter, the strip till machine, because we like to use a soil warrior or the sprayer. And then when we go to harvesting, you know, that's one way we track, but in all the equipment, we still have a notebook because irregardless that technology could be there, but something could happen. where we lose that information so we're writing things down you know we split the planter up so i might be making a pass like we're planting corn today and half the planter's got one hybrid the other half's got another hybrid we're also doing trials with different in-furrow and how it impacts each one of those hybrids so we write down but then we also use some of the current technologies available to us
2: So David, let's step back just a little bit because obviously we know what the corn yield contest is and and a lot of people do, but tell us about the corn yield contest. Is it a hundred acres, a thousand acres, half an acre? What do you do? How do you enter? All of those things kind of walk us through some of that. Well, in fact, John, we've we've already planted two areas that we are
0: anticipating to have be part of the National Corn Growers Association yield contest. So, first of all, it's got to be a minimum of 10 acres contiguously of one corn hybrid. And- A lot of times if you've had success or you have a good relationship with your seed provider, you know, they may either discount it or give you some seed to put into the plot. So that's one way to save some money, particularly in the cost area. Say, hey, I'm going to push some corn. How about throwing me a few bags of seed? And then we try to hedge your bets. We don't ever know if it's going to be a good sunny year or a cloudy year. So we don't know what population to plant. But, you know, you got to have 10 acres of a continuous one hybrid and then when it Comes time to send in the entry form. We go online. You know, all this has been streamlined, makes it so much easier. I remember it used to be to where you actually had to pick the field, pick the hybrid before you entered. Nowadays, all you have to do is pick the particular hybrid. So it's giving you a little bit more flexibility. But if it's irrigated, you know it's going to be in that particular field. So we send in the entry form. They ask hybrid information, planting information, seeding information. Some equipment information, some fertility, and then also just some basic agronomic information: herbicides, fungicides, insecticides, and fertilizer. And then, you know, after you've got that submitted, they send you a nice letter or email to say, "Hey, you've, your entry's been submitted." And then, just prior to harvest, you have to also. Designate certain folks to be supervisors. Because the neat thing about the National Corn Contest is that, you know, there are folks that are either certified or have credentials. To verify that that yield is actually occurring, and you know, with that in mind, you know, to me it gives it comfort. And you know, we've had great success. We've had a lot of folks from the National Corn Growers Association come in, whether they come from the home office or they come from other states or DC. They come down and they observe it. But you have these supervisors that are out there watching you harvest. So the neat thing about the harvest is, is you go out there, you have to harvest at least one and a quarter acres. So out of that ten acres or not. huge amount of it but based on your header height width we just run an eight row head so we'll pick eight rows in this plot and then when we get to the end of the area that we're going to stop they measure it and if we have not harvested at least an acre and a quarter out of that then we have to skip three header widths So we're skipping 24 rows and then we harvest again. And we keep doing that until we at least get an acre and a quarter to where we can put in the truck and then take to the certified scales and all the testing done. But the supervisors, you know, they go in, they look in the back of the truck, make sure the truck's empty. They look in the grain tank, make sure the grain tank's empty. And I remember years ago, one of the fellows that came and supervised, his name was Paul can't remember his last name, but he's like, hey, Dave, go ahead and swing the auger out and turn down unload auger on. And I looked at him and I was bewildered. I was like, okay, I'll do that. I'm like, why? As you just saw, he said, well... Just want to make sure everything's empty. I'm like, well, that's great. So we turn the unloading auger on, you know, maybe a handful of corn comes out of it. And nowadays what they do is they ask you to engage the harvesting equipment, turn the header on, turn the combine on, swing the unloading auger out, run it, make sure there's no grain captured anywhere, which that's just another form of checks and balance. And I clearly understand all this. And then after they do that, then you start harvesting and then you dump it into the truck. The supervisor, we have at least one supervisor riding with us. You know, the neat thing about the equipment nowadays, Dusty, is there's a co pilot seat on everything. So, we've got a supervisor riding, another supervisor is running a measuring wheel that's been certified or checked where they lay a, a tape measure out a hundred foot measuring tape. They calibrate the wheel, make sure it's all legit. And, you know, we do our acre and a quarter, dump it in the truck. Then the supervisor either rides in the truck or follows the truck, goes to the granary, wherever we're getting it weighed. And then they collect samples, run it through their certified moisture samples and truck gets dumped, unloaded. They have a piece of
2: paper. And fortunately, John, we have to do it all over again. So- have to do that recheck. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that Linda Lambert is on with us and she runs this program for NCGA and she's out of our St. Louis office. And, you know, the details that the entrants have to follow, she's the one who has to make sure that that winner is announced but that's the winner. And she does a, a super job for us. And so it's, it's really great to get her perspective talking about all the different people that she works with from Virginia, clear out to California. And it's really pretty neat. But that's a lot of detail. Uh, you know, I had not thought about, oh, yeah, you got to run the auger for at least a few seconds to go ahead and make sure there's not, you know, there could be certain amount of corn
1: in there. That's pretty neat. Yeah, John, we joked earlier about being as thorough as the IRS here. And when it comes to the National Corn Yield Contest, you got to make sure that you're as thorough as the IRS there. It it is worth noting here that as of Monday, May 2nd, the uh, contest will be open for 2022 entries. Anyone who's interested in that can go to ncga.com and click on the Get Involved tab up at the top of the website there. And the National Corn Yield Contest is right on top there. So uh, anybody who's hearing about that Now's the time to start thinking about getting involved in the 2022 contest. David, one question. What's your goal
2: for this year? What's your goal for the contest into the future? You must have some goals, don't you? Well, first of all, yes, we do have goals. And to see
0: four, five, now 600 bushel That's all a success. I don't care what grower it is. I got some ground. If I just see 200 bushel, I get excited about. But for high yield stuff, again, just to see 600 bushel, I think is an accomplishment. Because right now, there's only one farming operation that has reported it. Now, I'm not naive to think other growers have not seen it, but to have it recorded and documented. Based on what I share with growers, when you're out harvesting a field and you see your yield monitor get to a level, the first thing you should do is stop the combine, get out and look and see what's different about that corn versus the rest of your field. Hey, I even got a soil sample probe in our combine. I'm going to pull a soil sample. What was special about that fertility and that soil that might have done it? But then if you see a yield that your monitor gets to, and just like everybody else, I got a cell phone. I can play with the joystick, take a picture of a high yield, send it to my buddy, say, look what we're picking. But if you see a yield that's kind of high and it stays there for a little while that should be your new target. And we've seen levels into the upper 600s. I mean, I've seen the monitor jump to 700. Now, I think that was partially because a lot of corn was on the header and it all went in. So that yield is obtainable and somebody will get to
2: it at one point in time. David, you're on the James River. You're close to the Chesapeake Bay. Everything that flows off your farm flows into the bay. I paddle a kayak a lot and, you know, the Bay is important. It's a really big thing out here on the East Coast. And there's a lot of people that will point to people like you and say, are you just dumping all that fertilizer on that corn and just so you can win a contest? And what are you doing with the rest of your ground? So what do you say to those folks? And what do you say to folks that are saying, you know, you're just in it for one or two years. I think you've proven that you have a bit of a longer view, but talk about your sustainability, not only your environmental sustainability, but your family sustainability, your community community sustainability when you farm right on one of the most important watersheds in the country? Well, it's important to me because I remember
0: as a kid, I'm just under 60 years old. And when myself and my two younger brothers were annoying my mom, she just said, Y'all go outside, go swim in the river. Well, the river was polluted back then. And over time, it has really cleaned up. You know, we as producers have done a tremendous job. In the 80s or 70s, we started transitioning a little bit of no till. In the fall of 1986, my dad started a project where we were going to take one field and continuously no till it. This particular field's three miles to the east of us down to Dirt Road. And it was far enough away that if we committed to it, we didn't have to look at it every day. But if it worked, we were going to start implementing it on more acres. And from that time on, that field has not been tilled since the fall of 86. And we continuously pull good crops off it. So we're being good stewards from erosion control. And then now with technologies that we have with the planners of technology, Ability to put fertilizer on one or two sides of the corn row, below the soil surface, fertilizer, in with the seed. And then we also have started implementing what we call strip tilling. We're using a soil warrior to where we're working up a small piece of dirt, four, five, six inches wide, putting some fertilizer down there. We've controlled some erosion because we have all the rest of the area that is um, in what we call no-till. We have the cover. We're just working up that seed zone and we've allowed them to put our fertilizer there. Then we are even more efficient to where we're making multiple applications of nitrogen. You know, we have equipment to put fertilizer right beside the corn row. We do that at specific times in the season. And then in our irrigation environments, you know, we use the irrigation as a tool. We'll fertigate and we look at what our yield goal is. We understand what nutrient requirements that we have for that. And then we just make applications accordingly. So when we think about sustainability, I need to protect my soil. I don't want to pollute the environment. And I want to have something to pass on to my son And for him to continue on, because you know I'm the third generation here and a fourth generation here in Virginia, but the third on this farm, I got my son, Craig is a fourth. I got a grandson. Hopefully he may want to farm one day. So the only way we can do that is protect our soil, protect our environment, and we have to make it profitable. So all these things work hand in hand, because the neatest thing about when you think about this term sustainable, and sometimes I feel like it might be overused, but environmentalists as well as good agronomic practices that we as producers, they go hand in hand and they are usually very economical. So we focus on return on investment. I like to think that all the things that we do, that we are not only producing high yields, but we're also protecting the environment. And no, we do not just dump fertilizer on a piece of field just to try to
2: get a high yield. That doesn't work. The price of fertilizer being what it is right now, it's probably your highest non-land cost. That fertilizer doesn't do you any good out in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. You want to keep it on the farms. So that's one of the things I keep reminding people in the environmental community is we don't overuse fertilizer just to have it go down the streams. One funny thing I like to say is when you look at the Chesapeake Bay, when you look at the map and you look at where the James River is,
0: we're the last tributary feeding into the Chesapeake Bay before it dumps into the Atlantic Ocean. And then I oftentimes point to the northern part up there where the Potomac is. And, you know, that's where D.C. is. And I like to share with folks, I say, you do know what flows downhill, right? So we're capturing, we're recycling whatever nutrients that may be flowing
2: down the river. I've paddled a lot of the Potomac and a lot of the Chesapeake Bay area. And I can tell you going by a farm, the water is a lot different than going by, you know, a subdivision and certainly the Great Plains area up north of you, up the Potomac. It's kind of a different deal, but really interesting to talk about sustainability and at the same time, talk about sustainability with these yields that are just so incredibly amazing. And, you know, 10 years ago, 600 bushels was really out of sight. What do you think it's going to be another 10 years, David. Got any projections? Well, I remember,
0: you know, the late Francis Childs, he was 400 and some bushels. And then Randy Dowdy went to 500. And Steve Albrecht, the late Steve Albrecht from Hart, Texas, you know, he was up into that 400 bushel range as well. I'm not great on a computer, but I do like Google. And, you know, you type in what is the theoretical potential yield of corn? And you know at some point in time they said years ago it was 500 bushels. Well, I, I found a professor Tollenar said that by some 2030 or 40, the theoretical yield of corn could be somewhere in that 1311 bushels. I'm like, where in the world did you get 1,311? So I, I figured that'd be a great pioneer hybrid one day, 1,311, QZRT, whatever acronym behind it. But we're clearly over 500. We're over 600. We're not at 1,300. So I feel the yield of corn is somewhere in that eight 900 bushel range. And Dusty, if their theoretical yield is eight or 900 bushels, and their country average is only 170 some bushels, we as growers are not doing a very good job. So there's a big gap, but I think... I think as time goes on, we're going to start seeing their yields increase because farmers in general are just great
2: innovators, and they're going to continue to push the envelope.
1: Well, and a lot of that pressure falls on your son,
2: too. And i bet somebody by the name of Hula will be involved in some of those great future successes, so... Thank you, David, for sharing your story about how you are so productive on your corn farm and what it looks like in a part of the country where people don't naturally assume that you're raising corn. So that's really pretty neat. I want to close by thanking the contest premier sponsors, BASF, Corteva, and John Deere, the 18 seed companies that cover membership and entry fees for the contest, and our outstanding network of yield supervisors who keep the contest going year after year. I'm John Doggett, I'm the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association, and we hope you'll join us again real soon for the next episode of Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers
1: Association podcast. That is going to wrap up this edition of Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. New episodes arrive monthly, so make sure to subscribe in your favorite app and join us again soon. Visit ncga.com to learn more or sign up for the association's email newsletter. Wherever John May Roam is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association with editing and production oversight by Larry Kilgore III. And it's produced by PodCamp Media. Branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. For the National Corn Growers Association, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.